0: Amen. Whoa. How's everybody doing? Seem like super hot. There we go. I mean, the microphone, that is. Don't take that the wrong way. Easy, easy, right? Yeah, well, welcome. Uh, if you're first time here, or first couple of times here... Or haven't been here in a while? We just uh, welcome you and uh, extend our greetings. Happy, happy Fourth of July weekend, right? And uh, and David's right. It's not just about. It's not just about. Not just about hot dogs and hamburgers. It's really about being thankful. It's about showing our appreciation. It's about celebrating our freedom. It's about celebrating. And, and remembering uh, the people that have gone before us, those that have sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice, those that have served, uh, those that have uh, given of themselves uh, to make something that's totally different than the world had ever seen. And uh, we just uh, appreciate them, and we celebrate this weekend for sure. We've been studying through a topical series, which uh, most of you know is not really my forte per se, but I believe that God put this series on my heart. We've been studying it through a series that's really wrapped around answering this question. Uh, how do we, th- how, how do you, how do I, how do we, how do we thrive in a decaying culture? And we've looked at a variety of different uh, uh, biblical characters and... Um, I didn't really intend it to be this way, but it's probably more the way that my brain works. I kind of ran and have been running chronologically through the Old Testament looking at these uh, different men who have thrived in the midst of uh, their own cultures that were melting down around them, or, or there was significant issues. and, and w- So the question is, what's different about them you know, what's, what was God doing for them? What was God saying to them? How was God leading them that made them stand out so much different than everybody else around? Well, the rest of the world's melting down. What makes us stand out different? What is God saying to you? What is God saying to me? What's He saying to the church about how we can thrive? It's not a matter of just surviving, you know, just, just barely getting by. That's not what we're talking about. No, how do we thrive? How do we be successful? How does God lead his people to victory even though in the cultures that they live in are in uh, a lot of turmoil? Last week we looked at Daniel and his Jewish companions during the exile there in Babylon. Multiple times uh, <clears throat> they defied the cultural norms and the king's decrees to worship him. And it got them in hot water continually. Well, maybe not hot water. It got them in, you know, the three got thrown in the furnace. Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. They, they all were tested right off the get-go when it came to eating food sacrificed to idols. How did they handle that time? Uh, how did they handle those situations? Uh, how, did they, how did they thrive? Every time they chose this, they chose to believe God in faith. That's really, it's, it's, it's not a complex formula and, and some secret, you know, uh, thing that is, you know, wrapped up. Some enigma that we can't figure out in a Rubik's Cube and all that kind of... It's not that. They just simply operated in faith. They believed what God had to say. And every time, every time God came through for them. Today we're starting with a promise that God gave those in exile. And then we're going to look at the guy that is our kind of our topic for today... Turn in your Bibles or look up on the screen, look at Jeremiah chapter 29. This is the word of the Lord for those that are in, been in exile in Babylon. He says in verse 10, for thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all... All the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for these examples, these uh, men and women, Lord, that that you have uh, both spoke to, but you've led. And you've led, Lord, through difficult things. You've led through uh, uh, trying times. There's been plenty of occasion for them to be fearful, yet you come through. And so we just praise you in this moment. Lord, let your word speak to us all, that we would be changed uh, from here forward. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. About this little piece out of Jeremiah. Isn't it awesome to know? Isn't it awesome to know that God has a good plan? Right? Like most, a, a, lot of, a lot of other uh, belief systems... The good plan is wrapped in, up in how much you do or how much uh, a person can do. God ha- Jeremiah says God's the one with the good plan. God's the one with the good plan. Isn't it awesome to know that the Lord wants us to seek Him wholeheartedly? Seek Him wholeheartedly. When you seek me, you will find me. When you search for me with all your heart. He wants us to seek after Him wholeheartedly. And isn't it awesome to know that here in this passage, and we're going to get into this uh, in a little bit, is that the Lord is thinking multi generationally. So it's not just about one group. You know, it's not just about you, right? If you're, if, you, if you're, you know, 60 and above, hey, sorry, old folks, it's not just about you, right? If you're in that 40 to 50 range like me, and we think that the world revolves around us, right sorry folks it's not about us if you're younger right and every you're part of that everybody gets a trophy generation right i'm sorry young folks it's not about you right it's about all of us like god thinks multi-generationally it's awesome isn't it awesome that the lord is in the gathering business we're going to end with that thought at the very end of the sermon. But isn't it awesome that the Lord's in the gathering business? I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away and captive. So he's telling them, hey, this has happened to you for a purpose or, and a reason. We don't have time to get into all of that. If you want to actually look in that, look at the end of you know, Second Chronicles, you'll see the reason why they're there. But today we're going to look at one of these Jewish guys that, that experienced these promises in real time he experienced these promises of the return today's fellow of discussion is Nehemiah Nehemiah and that's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time you can actually turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we're gonna start but Nehemiah was a man of prayer and he was a man of action he was a man of prayer and he was a man of action now a little backstory before we get too much ahead of ourselves uh, there was three waves of of the exiles' return back to Israel. There was three waves. Uh, Zerubbabel brought fifty thousand people of Judah and Benjamin. That happened in uh, five hundred and thirty seven B.C. Ezra, Ezra brought eighteen hundred people back, mostly priests and Levites. That was in four eighty, uh, excuse me, four fifty eight B.C. And then the third wave was Nehemiah and it doesn't really say how many people came back with him. Uh, We know from chapter 1 there was at least a few, um, but Nehemiah's return happened in 444 B.C., and then, of course, you have kind of the sprinkling the rest of the 10 tribes uh, would kind of drift back at a later date. In chapter 1, Nehemiah got this word that the walls of Jerusalem were in disrepair. Now, if you know much about the Old Testament, much about the return at all. The the real quick synopsis is, Ezra was really focused in on the spiritual things. Ezra is a book right in front of Nehemiah. Ezra was really focused in on the spiritual things, rebuilding the spiritual foundation, the belief system, and all of that for Israel as they came back. That's why he brought back the priests and the Levites. Nehemiah's role was more on the physical side, but as we read through this, you will see that it's not just about Making sure that, uh, you know, as we say here about the, the deacon's role, their role is not to just make sure the lights are paid and the bills are paid and, you know, and, and, and the facilities taken care of. They have a spiritual role here. They're leaders, they're spiritual leaders. And Nehemiah was a lot of that same vein. Let's look and listen in to see what God says. And as I mentioned, uh, I'm kind of going to skip a few verses to get going, so we'll pick it up in Nehemiah 1, verse 4 through 11. Uh, but this was, this was the, uh, Nehemiah's response to getting a report that the walls of Jerusalem were just in utter chaos. They were broken down, burnt down, everything was just in shambles. And notice Nehemiah's response. Look at verse 4. So it was when he heard these words, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I say, and I said, he says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, he says, remember, I pray, verse 8, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord. And O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer into <clears throat> the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man and then talking about himself the end of their verse 11 Nehemiah says for I was the king's cupbearer what a prayer what perspective Nehemiah gives us how do we thrive in a decaying culture, how did Nehemiah uh, start off uh, his journey of return, his journey of doing what God had called him to do in rebuilding Jerusalem? He started with dealing with the disobedience. He's dealing with the disobedience. Nehemiah's response on the whole was emotional, dedicated, truthful, And hopeful. It's emotional there in verse 4 because he's coming to terms with the fallout of sin. And that's an emotional thing. He he he's coming to he's he put the pieces together. It's like it's like doing a puzzle, and he starts building this picture in a sense in his mind that that whoa, this is really judgment for how we've behaved as a nation. And so he just doesn't talk about the nation like it's all their fault. Like we often do, like I often do, I'll confess that it's always somebody else's issue. You know, if we we had a different governor, if we had a different president, if we had all these, as if it's all somebody else's issue. That's not it at all. And he was worked up, and he was emotional about it. He was also dedicated. His response was one of dedication. Look at verse four. I'll, I'll just reread a part of it. I sat and wept and mourned for many days. That's emotional response that takes time. he says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the gravity of what's happened and why they are where they are is all just gets lowered in on Nehemiah and on his thinking and in his response to what's going on. And then he gets real truthful. He recounts the warnings. He confesses the sin. Look there in verse 6. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He doesn't make it about somebody else's issue. He doesn't make it about just national leadership or government issues. He specifically uses the word we. He puts himself right there and he actually he doubles down on that. He says, both my father's house and I have sinned. That's what a strong leader does. That's what that you want to thrive in the midst of a decaying culture. Take responsibility for your sin. Take ownership for your sin. Take ownership for the sins of your people. That's what Nehemiah does. He takes ownership. He puts it out there before the Lord. And he recounts it by recounting the Warnings of the exile there in verse 8. But he ends on an upbeat. He ends on an upbeat. He says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, <clears throat> though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there. So there's this great regathering that God promised to his people and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's why Jeremiah gets a burden. It's not just that he says, "Hey, let me build, let me do something for God." He is he is absolutely shaken about the name of God and the representation that Jerusalem has in that and the state that it was in. Now, these are your servants, he says, verse 10, and your people from whom you have redeemed by your great power. And by your strong hand, that's a hopeful reminder. He reminds God of his redemptive promises and his protection for Israel. First thing we can do is we can deal with our sin. That's how we thrive in a decaying culture. To speed the story up a little bit, so Nehemiah got permission from the king. Of course, he was the king's cupbearer. And he got permission from the king to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. Uh, what, what, What do you do... What do you do when something needs, when you hear something needs rebuilt, but it's a long ways away? You got to go take a look, right? Like, guys, we're kind of hardwired that way. Somebody tells you something that needs to be fixed, well, let's go take a peek. Let's go take a peek. That's the next thing that's on his radar. Nehemiah decides to go take a look. Look at Nehemiah 2, verses uh, 11 through 18, excuse me. So I came to Jerusalem And was there three days, he says. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one of what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor is there any animal with me except for the one of which I rode. And went, I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken of me. So they said, let's rise up and build. And they set their hands to do this good work. When you're faced with a big task, Uh, And and I think this is, maybe this is a guy thing more than a gal thing. I don't don't want to be biased necessarily that way. But uh, when you're faced with a big task, what do you do? You do a little recon. Like Nehemiah says, hey, let's go take a look at this thing. Under the cover of darkness, he wanted to get his eyes on the job. The job that God had given us. Now, a couple questions came to my mind in studying through this. um, And I kind of alluded to it a little bit ago. But why was the wall such an important thing to God. And the second question is, is why did Nehemiah go at night? Why was the wall such an important thing to God, and why did Nehemiah go under the cover of darkness? The wall itself was kind of had two components. It was symbolic, but it was also practical. It was symbolic from the standpoint that, that a walled city pointed to a culture that was thriving, it was a symbol of security and prosperity. Uh, let me, you guys, just envision for yourself uh, living in a house where the walls are only um, have a few studs, you know, just enough to keep things up above you. However, that many is right. There's no security in a house that's only framed. There's no security in a house that doesn't have a front door. There's no sense of protection from that, right? Things are going to come and go. People can come and go. Robbers can come and go. Bandits can come and go, right? So symbolically, it it really was a picture of of a culture that was thriving. It was a, a symbol of security and a symbol of prosperity. They had something going on if you had a walled city. On the practical side, it meant that your enemies were held off in an attack, it meant that you didn't have to live in the fear and the anxiety of being attacked all the time. And so they're kind of blended together in a sense, you might say. But there was a very practical aspect. And you're going you're to see this conflict start to arise in the storyline uh, as they go to work on the wall. Because the enemy doesn't want that wall being built. The enemy doesn't want that uh, that symbol and that understanding for you in your life and me in my life. He doesn't want those things being built up in our lives that are good things, that are healthy things, that are, that are things that that protect us. Uh, uh, years ago, I heard a sermon series about guardrails, right? And how, how guardrails, if you're driving down the road and there's a guardrail, well, that guard. if you start getting squirrely on the ice, you're right, those everybody's been there my my whole my whole you know coming back to the Lord started with the story of me falling asleep and taking out you know over 100 yards of guardrail on I-90 down by Ellensburg so I'm really really familiar with what guardrails can do for you that set aside those guardrails keep you from going where you don't want to go and bumping into a guardrail might do a little damage, but it's going to keep you from a lot of damage. And a wall of a city is kind of the same way. Right? You may bump into that wall a little bit, or you might have a, a, you know, a pebble fall off from it once in a while, and bump you in the head or whatever. But that wall, generally speaking, is there for your protection. It's there for your benefit. He has to go get a little recon and see how bad it is. What's going on there? The wall wall was important to God. That's why he laid this burden on Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah was careful with that burden. I told no one what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. So he had an understanding of timing. He had an understanding that that there's a a time and a place to, to keep things, what God has showed you, and then there's a time and a place to lay them out and to put that vision out in front of the fellas and say, here we go, this is our task. Right? This is our job, church. This is, our, this is what God has called us to do. And then we're going to go and look at, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes. But they gravitated towards that as he laid that vision out to them. So why did he go at night? Why did he go at night? I think that's all part of what we've just been talking about. That there's a sense of timing in it all. There's a sense of concealing it. There's a sense of that uh, God had put a good work. He wanted to get in. He didn't want to make it a big splash. He just wanted to go take a look. Sometimes when we're in the midst of a culture that's in decay and God calls us to do something, we have to do that type of recon. We need to step into situation, evaluate it, not say much about it, and then come back and say, all right, here's what God's saying, and rally the troops, which is really what he did. But there's a little conflict first. Let's look at that. I'm going to jump ahead, Nehemiah chapter 4. But it so happened, now they're, now they're there in the rebuild phase. I'm kind of uh, moving quickly through Nehemiah. So they'd come out of Babylon, they'd they'd set up camp, so as it were, they went to work on the wall, and here's the pushback. Chapter four says, But it so happened when Sandablat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and mocked the Jews, and he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Notice the tone that he's asking these questions. Will they revive the stones from heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, so here's how uh, one mocker really cranks up the next. Verse 3, now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So you got this kind of up in the ante here going on in the mocking crowd. Hear, O God, verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach. This is Nehemiah's response to their mocking voices. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. I'll stop there and say this. Anything that's worth doing is going to have people that are going to, be, are going to doubt. They're going to mock. They're going to retract. They're, they're going to, it can't be done. Right? They're going to come in with the voices that, that are going to try to insert doubt into what God has clearly told you to do. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happening here. And there's this, if you read the whole book, there's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between these guys. And and it's funny because Nehemiah's response to all of this mocking voice is, hey God, why don't you do to them what we just went through for 70 years? Like, give them a taste of it all, right? That's kind of where he goes with it. It's like, you know, don't forget their sin. Like, you surely didn't forget ours, so don't forget theirs. Then it circles back to this, verse 6. Nehemiah goes on to say, so we built the wall. We built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. There's an interesting uh, tidbit as I read through the book of Nehemiah that uh, it wasn't about, we we talk about Nehemiah in these terms, that Nehemiah did this and that Nehemiah did that. There's a, he is always talking in the plural, other than like saying, hey, I've sinned, or I'm, I, then I said this. Generally speaking, when it comes to the building of the wall, when it comes to the task that God has put on Nehemiah's heart, then he puts that vision out for the people, and from there forward, it's always, we did this, and we did that, and we did this, and the people had a mind to work, and it's always plural. Nehemiah doesn't take this credit. He puts it out there for the folks. So we built the wall. Now it happened in verse 7. When Sandoval, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were, being, were beginning to be closed, that they become very angry. And they conspired together and come to come and attack Jerusalem and to create confusion doesn't take a high powered theologian to figure out that they're working off the blueprint of the author of confusion nevertheless we made our prayer to God and because of them we set a watch against them day and night I'm here to tell you that the more that you do what God's called you to do and as a church the more that we do what God's called us to do there will be pushback Notice the progression of the pushback. At first, it was just like a, a mocking voice, a doubting voice. And guess what happens? As, as we do what God's called us to do, as, as Christ's followers continue to move forward and promote and build and strengthen the kingdom of God, as we proclaim the gospel all around this world, the, the voices go from doubt and dissension and mocking to anger. That's the natural progression. So we better tighten our seatbelts. We better cinch up and be ready for it. It is what it is. It didn't change what God had for them to do. And it didn't change their response. And their response was simply verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So we were ready. They were ready. Verse 10, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. It would have been nice if they had had an excavator at that point, I'm sure, maybe a couple of them. I've gotten really used to having an excavator around, I'll have to say. And our adversaries said, and they neither <coughs> they, ne- they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them because of the work and cause the work to cease. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. So there was kind of this word that, uh, uh, you know, Judah gets concerned. Hey, hey, you're burning out the folks, right? He comes back to Nehemiah. Hey, you're, you're working them too hard. Their, their efforts are starting to fail, Nehemiah says, Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Verse 15 says, And it happened that when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought out this plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So, <clears throat> so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held their spears, their shields, their bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all of the house of Judah. Those that built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he, was, as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive and we are separated from one another on the wall. So whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the, <clears throat> at the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be on guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my and my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes except that everyone took them off for washing. How do we thrive when the enemy is in our face? And the third point I want to say is this, because this is what Nehemiah did. He doubled down. He went all in. I heard a story uh, maybe a year ago or so about a couple of young brothers that kept doing double or nothing, double or nothing, double or nothing. They had, this, they had this ongoing bet that like ran most of the day, most of the day, and it was just this like, all right, well, double or nothing. And that double or nothing on a quarter got pretty big, or whatever it was. Nehemiah doubles down on the Lord's plan. He kept going all in for what God had showed him to do. That's how you thrive in, in a culture that goes the other way, uh, that is in decay. That's how you thrive in a, in a culture that is, that is going headlong the wrong direction as the Word of God shows it. Right? You double down on what God's plan is. You don't fret, you don't fear, you don't hesitate. Nehemiah doubled down on the Lord's plan. And as a leader, Nehemiah had three things going. He was strategic, he was inspiring, and he was innovative. He was strategic, inspiring, and innovative. When I say strategic, he made a plan of defense, and then he adjusted to the needs Right? He made a plan, but then they said, well, we, we need to adjust. This isn't working. Right? And so he adjusted to the needs of the defense, but the work never stopped. They didn't stop working just because they were under attack. They changed their plans so they could work and be ready to defend at the same time. That's how you thrive in a decaying culture. You've got to be able to work And defend at the same time he was inspiring from the standpoint that he reminds the people that this was God's plan this was God's plan our God's gonna fight for us if there's a battle then God's gonna fight for us so he continually was putting the vision for what needed to happen the vision that God had given him just him alone and he spreads that to a couple of guys initially then he spreads it to the to everybody that was there in Jerusalem right and then he says, Hey, God's going to fight for us. God's going to fight for us. Many times we spend a lot of effort and energy trying to fight our own battles rather than just allowing God to fight on our behalf. And that doesn't mean that we're not without weapon. He says, God's going to fight the battle for us. The third thing is, is that he was innovative. He used the uh, trumpet and then an Old Testament version of open carry to keep things going. He says, hey, this trumpet guy's going to be with me. If there's an issue, quick, let us know. We'll, blow the, we'll get there, we'll blow the trumpet, and you just respond to what you hear. If you hear a trumpet going, then you need to, you need to drop the trowel and grab the sword and hustle on. Pretty innovative. The little open carry thing was uh, probably my favorite part. Now I could probably tell stories for hours about uh, farmers that have a tendency to have a rifle or two in the midst of a, in a tractor cab, especially maybe late in the fall. I won't bore you with those tales. But all the while, the work continued. They kept building. With every rock that was laid, they became stronger as a nation. With every rock that was laid, they became safer as a nation. With every rock that was laid, they became more secure as a people. And that's... There's something to be said for doing what God has called you to do bit by bit, piece by piece, day by day, opportunity by opportunity to build the kingdom of God that that you might not see it in the moment. But after a time you can step back and say, "Hey, this thing's this thing's moving. This thing's getting bigger. This thing's becoming stronger." And as I mentioned last week, there's always a test. We talked about the three tests that Daniel and his companions had to endure. There's always a test. Notice Nehemiah's response as his enemies put out a trap for him. Here's his test, comes in chapter 6. Now what happened when Sandoval, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I would had rebuilt the wall. So at this point, you get to chapter 6, the wall's essentially been made, <clears throat> except for a few things he mentions here. And there was no breaks left in it, though at that time we had not hung the doors and the gates. So that's the one entrance that, that was left open. Verse 2 says, Then Sandeblat, the Geshen sent, sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Anno. He says, Hey... Nehemiah, come on out to the plains. You know, here's, here's this guy that's already showed a lot of contempt, a lot of anger for what's going on, because uh, essentially they were being walled out. It wasn't the, that, I mean, you could look at it both ways. If you were inside Jerusalem, you were being walled in, so you had protection. But the backside of that is anybody that wanted to attack Jerusalem, wanted to go up the hill to Jerusalem, they were becoming walled out. So their opportunities were less and less and less and less. And so he shifts tactics. He goes from mocking to anger and frustration. Now he says, hey, Nehemiah, come on out, you know. Let's, uh, let's, let's meet out at the watering hole. Let's talk this thing over a little bit. And Nehemiah says, but they thought to do me harm. There's some pretty good discernment in that phrase. They thought to do me harm. My wife's favorite verse out of this book is right here, verse 3, chapter 6. So I sent messengers to them. So you got a text coming in, now you got a text going out. Saying, I'm doing a good, great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease? Will I leave it and go down to you? Right? The wall was already made. The only thing left to do was to frame up and bolt the, the hinges up the door openings but Nehemiah stays focused on the greater the greater issue and he's not going to lower himself right he's not going to lower himself to the enemy's desires the enemy's desires is to still take him out because if you can take out leadership a nation will crumble right if you can take out those that are in charge if you can take out the guy that's really really inspiring the guy that's really, really getting the task done, the guy that's really leading the people in a positive and, and energetic sort of a way, if you can take that guy out, then fear's going to be widespread and the walls won't really matter at that point. But Nehemiah was wise and he had godly discernment. He knew that it was a trap. First of all, he don't hang with these guys anyway. So why would, what does he have to talk with them about? And I ask you, what do you have to talk with the enemy about? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't have to talk with them about anything. He was talking to the ones that mattered. He was talking to his heavenly father about the vision that they had for us to rebuild the nation. And he was talking to his people and encouraging them to keep pressing forward. That's the conversations that really mattered. He didn't need to go out and meet with these guys. And so he said, he blew them off. Right? He blew him off. He didn't ghost text them. He just simply said, Hey, sorry, fellas. Got my hand to the plow here. Why should the work... Let me rephrase. I'll give you my interpretation. Why should what God has told me to do quit? Will I go down and meet with the person that doesn't want me to do it in the first place? It's a pretty powerful statement that he says. It's a pretty powerful statement Uh, example that he's putting before the people to say this is what is important. This is what God's called us to do. And nothing's going to stop that. Nothing's going to persuade me to stop what I'm doing on behalf of listening to you go on and on. When you have a little success, it's easy to let your guard down. The enemy tries to take advantage of that. Don't give in to the temptation to slack up on the Lord's work. Uh, do what Nehemiah did, double down. Double down. The minute that you get something accomplished, the minute that, that, that uh, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of this crescendo uh, in some sort of a ministry or, or, or whatever, that's not the time to slack up. That's not the time. God will give you rest. Don't hear the wrong thing. God will give you the appropriate amount of rest but it's not the time to let your guard down spiritually. Start listening to the words of the enemy. How do we thrive in a decaying culture? We deal with our sin. We do a little recon on what God's asked us to do. We double down on His plans. And there's an example in the New Testament uh, that has always been really inspiring to me, and this is where we're going to end. There's an example where God was working behind the the scenes to bring... A couple of guys together. Those two guys were Peter, a devout Jew, and Cornelius, a Roman centurion. In other words, this guy was a this guy was in charge of a hundred guys for the Roman army. So he had clout, he had power, he had authority. And God in all of chapter ten, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'd encourage you to go read the whole chapter. But the 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 beginning of the whole chapter, God is working in Peter's life and he's working in Cornelius' life and he's, and he's about ready to bring their worlds together, which was crazy for the day. Uh, it was perhaps one of the riskiest meetings in the, in the book of Acts, to say the least. See, Jews were forbidden to associate with the Gentiles. The Roman soldiers were forbidden to show allegiance to anybody other than Caesar. And it meant immediate death for them. But God's working behind the scenes to bring these guys together. And Peter, like Nehemiah, presses forward into God's plan of kingdom building. That's why this thing kind of came to my mind. What's what's the New Testament? And there's tons and tons of examples in the New Testament that you could put in here for me. Acts 10, verses 34 through 48, is is really a a great picture of pressing forward into God's plan. Verse 34 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation. So so this this is once they got together. I should probably build this a little bit better. This is once they came together, once they start having a conversation, once probably a little bit of the awkwardness was, was uh, dusted off between the two of them. And Cornelius, Cornelius starts asking a few questions, and that's where Peter then says, I'll reread it. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. That was a massive statement for that day. Like, there, no, there, there was nobody that was Jewish that believed that. Nobody. Nobody. They all thought they had the upper hand of partiality in God's eyes. And here's Peter, one of Christ's followers, one of his earliest of, of followers, and he says what nobody else in Israel was saying, and that God shows no partiality. Read on with me. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness it is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all of Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus (coughs) of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him, Peter says, speaking of his good friend Jesus, his Savior, his Lord, his Messiah. Him, verse 40 says, God raises up on the third day and shows him openly. I'm here to tell you, hey, if the tomb is empty, is there anything that's impossible for God? You tell me. Right? If this tomb is empty, anything's possible. Nothing's above what God can do. Him God raised up on the third day and showed Him openly. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with Him after He arose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is He who was ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. We have a kind of a common saying. Tim was the first one to say that I remember. But, um, and I was sharing it with somebody this week. Wherever you are, wherever anybody is in life, the answer is really the same. Like you could be the guy or the lady that's on fire for Christ. Man, you're just motoring through life. You're on, you know, boom, it's up here, spiritual high, the whole thing. It's awesome, right? It's great. I love that part of it. The answer for that person is the same as it is for the person that's still struggling, you know, and wondering whether they should put a heroin needle in their arm one more time. The answer is Christ. We all, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. I'm not talking autism spectrum. I'm talking where you are in the spectrum of life. Wherever you are, wherever I am, wherever we all are, the answer is always the same, and that's what Peter points to. The answer is more of Christ. We just need more of Christ. Wherever you are, you may need more of Christ. If you're rolling, rolling high and, and rocking and rolling with the Lord, guess what? You need more of Jesus. If you don't know Christ at all, guess what? You need more of Jesus. Because whatever you're getting ain't cutting her there. And it's the same everywhere in between. Whoever believes in Him will receive the remissions of sin. That's the one thing that we can't do for ourselves. And it's the one thing that every other system of belief promotes that you can do for yourself is to absolve yourself from your own weight of sin. And Christianity says, no, it's impossible. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. Right? Hanging upside down in a truck in the ditch outside of Ellensburg, I come to the realization, hey, I can't do this. Right? Like when you're that close to death, you have a pretty good idea that, uh, and, it was, and I will say this, it was the first time, it was the first time I ever heard my dad give God credit for anything. Because I said, man, it's a miracle we're alive. God saved us. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, absolutely. And like, I was shocked. I was shocked. I was in shock. But I remember that conversation like it happened two minutes ago. You can't do it for yourself. But you come to Christ. You get more of Jesus. You receive his forgiveness for your sins. Hey, guess what? You're rolling. You're on the right path. You need more of that. I need more of that. Peter was going about on a spiritual level what Nehemiah had been doing in the Old Testament, but Peter's building the kingdom of God one person at a time. And he starts with this guy, and God orchestrates these events in the most unusual way. Verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. That's what happens when Jesus is preached. That's what happens when Jesus is shared. The Holy Spirit comes in, and it's not just the person that maybe you're talking to. I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of somebody that was sitting in the kitchen. Well, there's a conversation in the dining room about Jesus, and the person in the kitchen is the one that's starting to come to faith, and nobody even knows it. Right? The Holy Spirit's working in the whole house, not just in the dining room. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those. All those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Well, I bet they were astonished. This whole meeting was astonishing. And as many came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, here it is. The Holy Spirit's not just for the Jews at this point, it's for everybody. God works in these crazy ways. And it was his plan from the beginning. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. There's some evidence, and if you want to call it that, that God's at work here. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these men should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they ask him to stay for a few days. Let me ask you this as the worship team makes its way up here. Going back to Nehemiah. What part of the wall are you building? You can kind of insert yourself into that story a little bit. If you can kind of, uh, and, and hey, guess what? We're all doing something, right? We all have our hand to some sort of task, some sort of something. So what part of the wall are you building? You're building the part of the wall with a Christian family because you've got a, a whole bunch of little ones and, and you've got to figure out like, uh, I've been kind of goofing off in my faith and so now I've got kids and now spiritual things are real serious to me. Is that the part of the wall that you're building? What part of the wall are you building? Where's your station? What's God saying to do? What part of life, uh, where have you been challenged to both build and defend? Because the two went hand in glove for Nehemiah and for the people of Jerusalem. What part are you, where are you being challenged to build and defend? Because it's the, you, you can't uncouple them. You can't uncouple. We won't uncouple them in this life, not by a long shot. Because as you're doing what God's called you to do—to build your family, to build your marriage, to build—you know—your part of the kingdom of God—guess what? The enemy is always there. He's always there with the voices that want to retract from what God has called you to do. Where are you building and defending? Because we have to be light on our toes as Christians, and we have to be able to do both. We have got to build and defend. Do you understand the voice of the mockers that you're being troubled by? Do you understand the voice of the mockers that you're troubled by? And are you ready to double down on what God has in store for you? As a church, I, like, I'm all amped up to do that. I mean, let's keep going. Let's keep doubling down. Let's keep doubling down on what God's called us to do. Like you hear this whole herd of kids coming from downstairs. It's like somebody just dropped the gate on Noah's Ark. It is. It's awesome. Guess what? They need more Jesus too. Like it's a tall task what just came through that door. Let alone all the rest of us. I'm telling you as one of the elders here. I'm fired up. I'm more than ready. Let's just keep pushing the chips to the middle of the table. Keep doubling down on God's plan. Not stress about the, the, you know, the, the, the detracting voices that are out there in our culture. If we want to thrive, if we want to th- thrive as Christians, don't get waylaid by that doubt and discouragement. I've told you guys several times, we just turn off the news. Like if you want 85% of all the doubt and discouragement, like turn off the news. I'm not saying we shouldn't be well informed. I'm just saying that, that it's, just, it's so depressing. And even people that are theoretically conservative. Right? Don't listen to those voices. Rise up as Christ's followers. Double down on what God's put in your heart to accomplish. If you don't know what that is, today is the day. I'm going to say this again with emphasis today is the day to seek the Lord and find that out. Right? God has a plan, He's got a plan for you as a family, you as a couple, us as a church, to continue to build the kingdom of God. Don't get discouraged. We won't thrive in the culture that we're in if we're constantly drinking from the fountain of discouragement. It's not going to happen. You've got to th- drink from the well of Christ. You've got to drink living water. You have to drink water that that is never going to go away. That's that's what he said to the lady. It's unending. That's what we're called to do. Let's rise up. Let's raise our voices. Let's worship Christ So we close out. Jonathan will close in prayer.